This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I just want you to get a quick idea before I talk a bit more about That's Those Enchanted Songs. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read something of one of my journeys into the painting. I want to begin with the first one, if I can find it. First of all, how many people here like painting? Wow, you're a painting literate audience. <laughs> how many people here have been to the Rembrandt exhibition? Ha, huh, okay. Can anyone tell me why they like paintings? Can anybody? Yes, please, over there. Say that loudly. The world gets distorted. Ah, the world gets to stop. I was going to say the world gets distorted. That happens too. The world gets to stop. Anybody else? Yes. You see things in a different way. I like that. I'm going to read you the, a passage from the piece I wrote about that. Bird talk in a tentative world. There are rumors that we are living in a tentative world world. These rumors have been around for as long as the world has been around. But recently I started hearing the rumors in a new way. Has the world changed or have I? Did the world change me or did I change the world with that new listening? These things are hard to determine. Some maintain that the world became what it did after the rumors. I remember the morning it all changed. On that morning, colors were singing in the light. All became clear. The greens and yellows and ochres were singing. I found myself listening. As I listened, a friendly blue jay landed on a wooden post next to me. All things have been talking to you from the beginning of time, it said, and you have not been listening. It's just an extract. That painting was when uh, Rosemary went to Egypt. And that's, does anybody know that symbol that that funny figure is holding? Can you say it loudly, please? It's an anchor. Do you know what an anchor is? It's a symbol of life. It's a symbol of immortality. It's what they feed to the pharaohs. Do you know how you read a symbol like that? You have the vertical, which represents from earth to heaven, eternity, and you have the circle on top, which represents secularity, and then you have the horizontal line, which represents time. So you have all the levels there in that symbol. It's one of my favorite symbols. Can someone tell me what it is they see in this painting? What they see first? It's not a test, don't, don't be nervous. The sun, anybody else? What draws you most into this painting? The blue landscape, somebody said. Anybody else? The light, the person on the funny animal. Anybody else? Rhythm. Who said rhythm? Ah, you would do, wouldn't you? He's a great director. Any, anything else? The sense of distance. The sense of distance. You have a good voice for distances. 
Anything else draws you into it? I'll take one last comment. Who said that? You said that somewhat tentatively. Color. Thank you. I'll tell you what draws me into this painting, and it's uh, one of the first things I look for in a work of art of any kind. And it's that vast empty space in the middle, where apart from this fricasse of colors, there appears to be nothing. I always tell people, go look at paintings, whether you're looking at Rembrandt or Picasso, Matisse or Dali, they always crowd their paintings. It's as if they're terrified of leaving you any space. It's as if they think that you will think that they don't know what to do with space. And so you don't get that generosity of space often in paintings. It takes courage to leave you a lot of space like that. For me, that space is a space of invitation. It's a space of storytelling. If you notice in my readings, I always have pauses. I like pauses. I like spaces like that. If you noticed in Charlotte's dancing, there were moments of pauses as well. Pauses, spaces, gaps invite you in. We live in an age where we talk a lot. We talk too quickly. You watch two people in conversation, it's like a... It's like watching a tennis match between two great players. Everyone's talking too fast. But the best conversations sometimes are when there are these pauses, these silences. That's called Dimensions of a Storm. I lived with that for four months. And after a while, for me, it became a story about tracing the journey that a storm makes. That's called City of Enigmas. What do you notice about that painting? What's the first thing you notice about that painting? Picasso-like figures. The Picasso-like figures. Thank you. Anybody else? The what? The integration of houses and face. Yeah, it's a, it's a technique that um, I also like a lot because I do it often in my writing. The merging of dimensions to make them one. I'll read, um, I'll read a bit from this painting which is called which is called Can You See Me Buying Time to Remember? <laughs> Gazing into a Dream. I took my cue writing the story about this painting from the, from the curious gaze of the figure and the largeness of the figure's face dominating the landscape. My people are strong gazers at the world. They can see a blade of grass quivering in a distant field or the minutest grain of wood on a granary door. With a single gaze at warriors on horseback, they can tell whether victory or defeat awaits them. Seeing clearly has been our strength. Those who see best become masters among us. I like to use the same technique that I call radical looking with with poetry. 
Um, I think we read poetry too quickly. I think we read too quickly. I think we certainly look too fast. I love it when I go to exhibitions and I whiz around the place and I choose one painting and stand in front of it for 30 minutes till I stop seeing the painting. This is called Return to the City of Dreams. If we had time, I'd read you the whole story. It's about the almost impossibility of coming back home once you leave it. That one is called The Blue Crusade. We did a dance, me and Charlotte. We did a dance to this in Italy against a landscape that looked exactly like this. This is called Walking the Fish. I read a bit of this, I think. It is common to take a dog for a walk. It is less common to take a dream for a walk. To set out with the rising sun and an empty mind and wander the narrow path that leads to the sea. To find rising in the mind a dream one once had but didn't remember at the time. To ponder the dream and relive its mysterious hints. Walking with a dream works wonders on the malleable forms of the world. Obstacles bend into the shape of one's hopes. Difficulties refigure themselves into triumphs. Lucky are those who walk with the gods. Only strong dreamers shape the magic that makes all things real. But how strange it is on a morning where the air disperses color like birds in flight to find a woman wandering along the shore walking her fish. In truth, she was not walking her fish. The fish was taking the lady for a walk. She was in a philosophical mood that morning, but not the fish, who preferred the silence of colors. What are things made of, asked the lady. Things are made of the way you see, said the fish. What is it that makes the way you see? The way you are makes the way you see. What makes the way you are? Sometimes it's the way you feel, said the fish. And what makes how you feel? The spirit, said the fish, testily. Whether it be open or closed, narrow or wide, whether it flows like the sea or is frozen like ice. But what makes the spirit? That's enough philosophy for a morning's walk, said the fish. Um, How are we doing for time? Um, we've got about another half hour, so I'll yes. ask you a couple of questions yes. related to the book yes. and then move on to the next one. Um, I found the book deeply profound. I was crying this morning when I reread it, and it takes a lot for a Scotsman to cry, I tell you. Um, do you write to evoke a response from your readers? Do you hope for a response? No, I, it's, not, it's not a response I want from my readers. Uh, because to, to want a response is really to want to know the effect of what you've done. Um, what, I, what I kind of hope for from my readers is a silent implosion. 
So I hope that you're, manifests you're itself. Me, you're looking at me doubtfully. <laughs> no, it's, um, I'm still moved by the book, to be honest with you. I mean, I finished, I put it down at 11 o'clock this morning. And it's one of these seminal books that, you know, do urge you to go out and buy it, that it will change your life when you read it. Yeah, most movingly. Um, the introduction itself there is almost like an essay. It's absolutely stunning. Um, you see in the introduction, we think we write, but the universe writes through us the veiled allegories of our age. Yeah. Um, so, through your lens, what is this universe that is writing through us? Well, the universe that's writing through us, the universe that's dancing through us, the universe that's painting through us, whatever it is we do, is the universe that we are open to. Um, so if we're open to the distress that's out there, if we're open to the pain, if we're open to the possibility, that's what writes through us. That's what sings through us. Um, so it's, it's, it's not the universe as such, it's us. It's how closed we are or how open we are. It's how free we are or how fearful we are. Um, and our work, the work of our hands, the work of our dreams, only reflects, not our talent, finally, mm-hmm. it reflects our, the courage of our spirit. Um, because I, I know really talented people but whose, whose spirit strangles mm-hmm. their, their, their talent. So it, the talent gift is not enough. There also has to be kind of an internal courage. Yeah. Um, uh, it could be courage for openness, it could be courage for love, it could be courage for asking questions. Um, so, um, I think the other thing is, is also what we choose to identify with, what we choose to look at, what we choose to reflect. Um, and for me, there, I, I, I always choose three things. Um, I always choose the transcendent in us. Um, I always choose to be aware as much as possible of the underground, the underneath suffering of our times, because sometimes the suffering is not evident. Um, and I always choose freedom. freedom. Well, freedom is the theme of this year's Edinburgh International Book Festival. So, um, there's three common themes that I found running through the work. One is the dream state. The other one is a kind of an instruction to be still. And the other one is to learn how to see, how to gaze. Were you conscious of these themes when you were writing the book? No, I wasn't conscious of anything when I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, what I keep saying is that this is the most... What's the word I use? Um, not undeliberate. This is the most unintentional book I've ever written. Um, you've got to get the word right, right? Um, almost every other book I've written, I've intended to write. I've dreamt of writing. I've wanted to write. I've planned to write. Uh, but this one, there were no plans. Um, I was just, like I said, going into paintings, coming back out with these texts and storing them up for years. And then going back and looking at, looking at them and being, so, and being somewhat amazed at, these, at the things that I wrote without actually sometimes thinking about it. Um, and it, it, it taught me a very, very important lesson that maybe sometimes we overthink our creativity um, and that sometimes some of our best work just comes when we are not even aware that we're doing it. Um, but of course you have to be at a certain stage in your art to be able to to be able to do that. Um, 
So no, I wasn't conscious of those themes, but those themes are themes that are central to me in many ways. Uh, strong looking is central to me. Um, do, you, do you find writing itself helps you to be still? For me, writing is all about stillness. Uh-huh. Although sometimes I move when I'm writing. Uh-huh. Tell me more. Why? It's the secrets of the writing world. That people, <laughs> want, people want these revelations. You want revelations, yeah. yeah. No, I do some of my, favorite, my best writing when I'm walking. I have this, um, I have this computer strapped to my chest. <laughs> And I go, I go for a walk through my neighborhood, and I'm... You don't believe me, do you? Um, in, in, in the poem, The Domain of Uruk, you said, I am one of the watchers of the domain. Because um, watching could be quite a passive activity. And I spent two days ago, I was with one of the members of Pussy Riot, and she was advocating for activism and art of activism. Do you see yourself as a you're writing your poetry as activism or as social commentary? I, first of all, I don't think watching is... I don't think... There are levels of watching. Uh-huh. Um, there is a level of watching which is passive. You're, you're there in a, in a cafe, you're watching people go past on the street. Um, but there's another level of watching which is really very creative um, and very dynamic and very, very intense, where you're, 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 you're watching the world. You're watching to see how the world is made, how the world is ruined. Um, I don't think we pay enough attention to how the world is ruined because the world is not ruined in big sudden gestures, big sudden announcements, big sudden laws. Um, I think the world is ruined sometimes very subtly, very quietly, very unperceptibly. Um, I'll just give you one simple example. The mood of, of, of Britain now is quite different from the mood of Britain seven years ago, five, six years ago. But there wasn't a one moment in which it suddenly changed. It's been changing very quietly, um, and we've not been paying attention to it. Watching that is not passive. Mm-hmm. It's an act of, it's a political act in itself. Um, so for me, writing is, is activism um, in a sense of drawing the keenest attention that I can draw to how we're deceived and how we can be redeemed. Because for me, there's two activisms I'm interested in. There's the political activism, but there's also the spiritual activism. Okay, tell me more about the spiritual activism. How does that, how does that show itself? How, does it, how would you describe it? Spiritual activism is very difficult mm-hmm. and actually a bit awkward to talk about. Okay. Do you want to talk about it? Yes. Are you, yeah. are you drawn to awkward things? Well, Ben and I met six years ago in Bath and it's a similar conversation that we had after the show it's uh, I, f- I find it kind of the realm of mysticism but often some of the best poetry does does reveal that world um, so please do speak about this well, well spiritual activism is uh, is is the is the is the courage to not accept the world as given It's the courage to see that the world is the sum total of how we have made it or how we have failed to make it. Um, Spiritual activism is the the courage to love. Spiritual activism is is the courage of compassion. Um, Spiritual activism is the power of the imagination. We underestimate the power of the imagination. We totally underestimate it. 
We think the power of the imagination is confined to poetry and to paintings. But for me, the power of the imagination is, is evident in every aspect of our social and cultural life. Um, without imagination, it's impossible to know what somebody who is not you feels. It's impossible to identify with shiploads of people who are leaving their homeland because they have no way of earning a living and they're prepared to die in the seas so they can change their lives in some way and the lives of their family. Um, for me, that's spiritual activism. I don't think you can have genuine political activism without some spiritual activism. Uh -huh. um, because a politics that is without compassion, for me, is, is, is very dry. Yeah. I mean, you speak about playfulness being the, the dream time of our spirit, and it seems that there's a kind of childlike quality that ideas come to you more creative, and then for different kind of reasons and levers of social and educational input that, that that kind of imagination is kind of driven from us. How then do you, do you find time to be playful to, to feed that dream time? How can you find time not to be playful? <laughs> Goodness, I, I, yeah, playfulness is, yeah. Don't get me started on playfulness. Yeah. They, I, I don't know how they do it, but they drive playfulness from us really early. I mean, you watch, I, ha I have a 22-month-old baby called Mirabella. And I, I, just, I, just, I just watch her, watch her play, and um, I'm filled with horror that at some point in the school system, they will make play out to be a, a bad thing and should be encouraged to be a very serious and solemn person. But I think, for me, playfulness is the heart of, 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 of the possibility of the human. Um, Playfulness doesn't take the world seriously. Playfulness, uh, playfulness kind of restores us to um, the unbounded possibility that we always had. And around about the age of 12, we forget. Maybe it's earlier. Um, so how do I get the time to be playful if I... Goodness. Well, do you incorporate playfulness into your writing practice? Do you go Absol off into realms Absolutely. Of yeah. Absolutely. Um, for example, uh, there was a time I'd, I'd actually get, I'd get these serious notebooks to write in and get these kind of special pens. And I found that when I got these special pens and serious notebooks, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be like holding the pen and I'd be looking at this serious notebook and I'd be like, God, this is, this is really important. There I start. Um, I just dropped all that. And after a while, I just wrote on rejected paper, cardboard boxes, uh, bank slips. Um, I like writing on rejected material. I like using the crappiest pens. Um, I've, got these, uh, I've got these writer friends. We'll meet, and they say, Ben, what pen do you use? <laughs> and I'll bring out this really cheap, useless pen. And they say, but how can you write with that? And I'd say, well, how can I not? Um, I think the, the easier, the more playful, the freer, the more creative. When people ask me, you know, how do you deal with writer's blocks? I, I don't know what writer's blocks is because I'm too busy <laughs> having fun with the existence of, of the creative. Um, 
And they ask me, what should, I, what should they do? And I say, don't take yourself so seriously. Don't take, don't take the business of the art so seriously. All the greatest artists, if you, when you read them, they have this... When you read them, watch them, look at their works, they have inside their works this incredible secret smile. Almost like they're constantly having you on. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, but, but before we move on to the next book, Rise Like Lions, I'd like to read to you a quote from Albert Camus. Um, he's talking about freedom. And he says, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that the very act of existence is an act of rebellion. Do you see, possibly you see that as being playful as well as an act Playful, of rebellion. Playfulness is the, is the highest act of rebellion. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all the great texts. Uh, one of my favorite books is a book called Don Quixote. You can't get a book more ridiculous than that in its premise. Um, it really is a ridiculous premise. Here's this guy who spent all his life reading these books. One day he gets to about the age of six and he thinks, God, I'm sick and tired of reading books. I want to live, I want to live a book. I don't want to be reading. I want to, I want to live. I want to live the imagination. So he goes out there and um, starts to live the imagination. And he gets beaten and rejected and clubbered and laughed at and ridiculed and... And after about 500 pages, what happens? He becomes a legend. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to move on to the, the next book, Rise Like Lines, Poetry for Many, which you edited. Um, would you like to talk about the process of choosing the poems and the common themes that arose from doing the editing? Um, I don't want you to feel like this is a jump, but there's a, there's a connection between all of this. Um, and the connection between the magic lamp, the paintings, the dance, and Rise Like Lions is freedom. Um, uh, the, 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 I wrote a poem because I was kind of very deeply affected by the Grenfell Tower disaster which happened in my neighborhood. Um, and when I was a hungry young writer in the 80s, um, Grenfell was my almost my constant view. Um, and when the, on the second day of the burning of the tower, you could smell um, not just the, 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 the flames of the, the wood and the ceiling and the cladding, you could smell burning flesh. And um, over, those, over those two days, uh, I noticed something really weird. Uh, my daughter couldn't sleep. And um, I, 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 I couldn't bear it, and I wrote this poem. And the poem was read by six million people across the world. And uh, my publishers phoned me up and said, would you put together a book of political poetry? And I said yes, immediately, because I felt this was one of the most electrifying times for political poetry, because we're living in the times of a lot of troubles. We're living in the times of uncertainty, of chaos, of fear, of the rise of the right wing, of the intimidation and demonization of immigrants. We're living in a time when people rather build walls than build friendships. We're rising in a time when we're, we're living in a time when to be a Muslim is to be fearful for yourself. 
We live in a time when, in fact, to be religious is to be a little bit fearful for yourself. And it seemed to me to be just right to look into po political poetry and to ask two fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a citizen now? And the second question, what is the value of political poetry? I read about 10,000 poems in order to choose 100. I read so many poems, poems were coming out of my ears. Literally. I'd wake up and pull out a, <laughs> pull out a Whitman poem. And sometimes I'll pull out a T.S. Eliot poem. I wanted to expand the idea of what we consider political poetry. Because after having read 10,000 political poems, I came to the extraordinary conclusion that political poetry is not meant to send you out into the streets with banners. It's not all it's meant to do. Political poetry is meant to do something often quieter than that, which is to make you aware of the unease in our times that we may be unaware of. Political poetry is just meant to tweak our sensibility so suddenly we feel the heat in the world. Suddenly we hear what politicians are saying differently. I think if political poetry does that alone, it would have done something really, really important. Because for me, political poetry is not just about activism, it's also about consciousness, making us aware. So I chose a hundred poems in all languages, and I wanted to expand the idea of political poetry. And so I have in this book varied figures of political poetry like Ernest Hemingway. You wouldn't think Ernest Hemingway was a political poet, but he is. I'll give an example. This is a poem of his called The Age Demanded. The age demanded that we sing and cut away our tongue. The age demanded that we flow and hammered in the bung. The age demanded that we dance and jammed us into iron pants. And in the end, the age was handed the sort of shit that it demanded. I have in your poems some people like Adrian Rich, Bertolt Brecht, you would expect, Emily Dickinson, you would expect, Robbie Burns, of course, you would expect. But I have people like Bob Marley, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, they paved paradise, and what makes that poetry? It's the sound. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. The dance of those peas that echoes paradise, paradise, but paved, paved. Do you want to read your Bob Marley? Yes, please, yeah. Go for it. Do you have it? Oh, do you want me to read it? Yes. I'll read it with you. Okay, then. Thank you. What page is it on? You're asking me. <laughs> 67. 67. Shall I read the first and you read yes, the second? Yes, please, sir. 
Old Pirates. Does anybody know this poem? Old Pirates. Yes, they rabbi. <laughs> Sold I to the merchant. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever have, redemption songs, redemption songs. Emancipate yourselves. Shall we read it together? Yes. Emancipate, Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. For none but ourselves can free our minds. Have no fear for atomic energy. Because none of them can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Some say it's just a part of it. We've, we've got to fulfill we've got the book. To fulfill the book. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I'd like to... I'd like to... Um, Thank you. I'd like to open up the floor for questions um, for the next 10 minutes. There's four roving mics. Um, if you put your hand up, I'll try and do as many as I can. And please say who you are, and please ask a question rather than merely a statement. So who would like to go first? This lady in third row. Should we take a couple at once? Yeah, okay. Um, Hi. One of the things that really struck me was your comment about courage for openness. And I think that I wondered if you could just develop that as to where we see in our world today. I, th I feel that's one of the biggest challenges we face as individuals to maintain that courage for openness. Thank you very much. Okay, so take a couple? I'll take a couple now. There's a gentleman at the front. I'd very much like to know what Bob Dylan poem you chose and would you read it for us? Huh. Okay. Should we take one more? There's a lady, lady at the back. Hello, you talked about happiness and, um, uh, and playfulness. What about your daughter, Mirabella? Will you allow her to be a voyeur naturally, or will you give her the screen to look at? Will I allow, allow her to be a... A voyeur. A voyeur. Naturally. Or will you give her the iPhone to be looking at? <laughs> the iPhone? Well, your iPad or whatever. The they iPad. Have. Ah, technology, yes. Children and technology. Huh. Okay. Uh, openness. Um, where, where, where do we look for openness? Is that, is that, was that your question? I think it's just we're being challenged the courage, to have the courage to remain open in, in today's world where we're, we're so many things come at us. We can choose only to look at certain types of music, listen to certain types of music, read certain types of newspaper online. I think we're being challenged even more than ever to remain open to others and their, their situations throughout the world. Yes, no, I, I, I agree. I agree, but I, I, I don't think we should look, I don't think we should really be looking to anywhere um, to, to, to maintain this courage of openness. I think we should start with ourselves and our neighborhoods, our communities, um, and, and the choices we make. 
Um, I think we should always expand uh, our choices, not only to what appears to be available, but to look beyond what appears to be available and go seek for that which does not appear to be available. I, I'll, I'll give a very good example. I was having a, a conversation this morning with a lady who came from Australia, very lovely lady, and she was talking about events she wanted to come and see at the festival. And I said, what are you coming to see? And she says, well, I, you know, I'd like to see all kinds of things, but uh, I'm only going to see the things that I've heard about. And I said, well, why don't you go see the things you've not heard about? <laughs> you know? If everybody does the things that they've heard about, uh, we kind of narrow the possibilities of this world. You know? We, we need to always look outside the mainstream recommendations. And mainstream recommendations can be our cultural recommendations, it can be our cultural biases, uh, the biases of our communities, the biases of our education, etc., etc. So openness is, is, for me, a political thing because it expands, explodes, the limitation that the world always puts upon us in the narrow choices that they pretend is available. And the choices are always wider than that. So the openness begins here and here. Um, we should encourage our politicians to be open, but good luck with that. <laughs> you know? We have one or two who would like to be, but structures make it very difficult for them. Um, Bob, Ma Bob, Bob, Bob Dylan, I have, I have two Bob Dylan poems in here. Um, Hard Rain and um, the, the, what's the other one I have? <laughs> well, when you get the book, you will see there two things. <laughs> and at the end of this, I'll read a couple of lines. And, um, Playfulness and, uh, and, 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 and ch children. Uh, it's, technology is uh, unavoidable in our times, I'm afraid. It really is. I heard someone say that they're going to ban iPhones for their kids till they're 16. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, but playfulness, to keep playfulness in one's child as long as possible, is, is going to be one of the... One of the uh, the central things of, of my relationship with her. Uh, to, keep, to keep alive her freedom, her playfulness, her surprise, her, you know. I, 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 I watch her. I mean, I get older, I get a bit more timid. I, I walk into a room like this, I'm like... She strides into a room, she's like... <laughs> so I'm kind of trying to imitate this. I'm, I'm learning from her. Um, I don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what, I don't know what they're doing in, 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 in education. Um, I hear so many complaints, fears, and worry. Uh, it's not the fault of teachers, it's the it's, it's fault of the, the governments keep imposing a, a way on, on, on the possibility of children and how they learn and how they grow. Um, but, I, but I still think there's something that we can do as parents. There's something we can do as adults. Um, and it's a, and the other Bob Dylan song is the times they are a changing. Times they are a changing, of course. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you one last question. I mean, it was mentioned there about technology. Um, increasingly, what they call Instagram posts are popular amongst younger people, particularly after, for example, the disasters you mentioned, such as Grenfell Tower. Um, do you have an opinion on how digital 
technology might shape the craft and future access to poetry and poets? I, I think technology will make poetry much more accessible. I mean, I give the example of uh, the Grenfell Tower poem. Uh, maybe about 10 years ago, I'd have written that poem. It would have been read only by the readers of the Financial Times, God help us. Um, but it's true. I mean, no poet wants to, read to, wants to be read by only <laughs> one newspaper constituency. You want to be read by anybody who... But because of technology, because this poem was online, because this poem was on the BBC, people could read it everywhere. They could read it in Nigeria, they could read it in Tasmania, they could read it in Australia, they could read it in America. Uh, they could read it in, 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 in Africa. Um, so just that alone is an explosion of the possibility of the reach of, of poetry. If you're talking about the writing of poetry, for me, I'm sorry, it's going to be the same old-fashioned, scratching, really crappy pen on rejected, <laughs> non-used paper. On that optimistic note, I'd uh, <laughs> like to all put well, your hands together for the fabulous Ben Austin. Thank you. Um, I, I sort of actually really wanted to end it with a short poem. Okay. So if I could do that. And it's the short poem I want to read is a poem uh, from Rena Maria Rilke called The Silent Hour. And Rilke is not known as a political poet, but this surprises you. Whoever weeps somewhere out in the world weeps without cause in the world, weeps over me. Whoever laughs somewhere out in the night, laughs without cause in the night, laughs at me. Whoever wanders somewhere in the world, wanders in vain in the world, wanders to me. Whoever dies somewhere in the world, dies without cause in the world, looks at me. Thank you very much. Thank you, that was beautiful. Um, if anybody ventures out of Charlotte Square, why would you? But there's, a, there's an art exhibition by the Indian artist Shilpa Gupta, which is called For In Your Tongue I Cannot Hide. And the, the exhibition reflects on 100 jailed poets, and it's an absolutely beautiful, stunning piece of work. And that's at the fire station next to Edinburgh Art College. So I do encourage you all to see that. Um, we're going to leave the stage now to get ready for some book signing, and I hope to see you, most of you there, shortly. Thank you. Thank you all very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.